All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here. This is Voice of Christian Israel for the last uh, Sunday, actually the last day of 2023. To uh, guess what is? Yeah, tonight is New Year's Eve, and uh, we reported earlier that uh, a lot of New Year's Eve celebrations have had to be canceled because of flooding in London and in Paris and maybe Canada and elsewhere. Who knows? <laughs> Yes, lots of things to ponder, and uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, some biographies of uh, American revolutionaries, but uh, first I want to quickly comment, because there's still discussion in the chat room about the different translations of the Septuagint Bibles, and uh, as I said uh, earlier on Bloodlines today, some of the Septuagint translations have accommodated the Masoretic text rather than vice versa, okay? So you cannot uh, you cannot assume that the current crop of Septuagint translations are as good as the originals, okay? Now, the original Septuagint, you know, I'm, this is going way back, but uh, into Christian times, they contained the Hebrew Tetragrammaton, written right to left in Paleo-Hebrew, whereas the text was in Greek was written left to right in, in Greek, of course, okay? So that's something that probably none of these modern translations of the Septuagint contain. So the original Septuagint contained the Tetragrammaton right to left in Paleo-Hebrew, and I have demonstrated that uh, on a few occasions with actual images of the original Septuagint. So that's how much they revered the sacred name Yahweh in the Old Testament, okay? But the Jews don't do that. They don't revere the name of Yahweh. They delete it and replace it with L-O-R-D, okay? So again, it's it's still a matter of having to have a couple of concordances around. And if you understand Greek, that would be awesome to understand the... um, Septuagint, if you have a knowledge of Greek, working knowledge. But nevertheless, you can still get around these things by reading through commentaries and finding out what the Septuagint actually teaches. And this is why we're next uh, Sunday we're going to go into the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and, uh, and also the Peshitta and compare that with the Masoretic Text and, and the, uh, the, the Septuagint. So, We'll have a lot to consider, and so far, I'd say the uh, you know the evidence that we've got so far is that the Masoretic text is a, a perversion of the original Hebrew, and we'll be continuing to prove that. So anybody who says that the King James Version of the Bible is inerrant or accurate, or you don't need any other you know any uh, historical device besides the King James Version, well, that person is either ignorant or insincere. Because that simply is not true. The King James Version has horrible faults because it is based on the Masoretic Text, which is a total corruption of the Hebrew for Jewish purposes. Okay? So, anyway, thanks for being here. And today I'm going to go into, uh, because there was discussion about the uh, Constitution, U.S. Constitution versus the Articles of Confederation. On uh, you know in the chat room earlier today, and uh, that is a much worthy subject. It's a very worthy subject, and in general. And uh, let me put paste the uh, article here, and this is from Encyclopedia Britannica, which you would expect is going to be pro-British, <laughs> not necessarily pro-British, but. Uh, that's what you would expect, but I think that's a, this is a fairly honest review of some early American patriots and what they had to go through in fighting the British Empire at the time. Now, of course, we in identity know that the British Empire was already controlled by the Rothschilds, or not necessarily the Rothschilds, uh, that by the War of 1812. The British Empire was controlled by the Rothschilds because the Rothschilds took over the Bank of England. But the Bank of England was firmly in the hands of Jewish banksters. They're the ones who financed Cromwell to assassinate Charles I. They propped up Charles II using prostitutes. 
to compromise blackmail and otherwise intimidate the British lords who did not want to vote for the Bank of England. So again, you see that the great horror of Revelation is, in fact, the international banking system of the Jews. And uh, it's been around here since uh, early Egypt and still exists today. But uh, the great horror of Revelation is, in fact, the Jewish banking system. However, there's still those who argue, I think, also correctly that uh, part of the great horror is Judeo-Christianity. The difference between Judeo-Christianity and Christian identity is we do not accept usury as a a legitimate form of commerce. So, And since America was uh, booting out the British and Jewish banksters, that uh, you cannot compare, you cannot say America is the great horror. What you can say is that international banking, especially as practiced by the British Empire when we had our revolution, was indeed the great whore. So what we're dealing with here is two, two diametrically opposed views of the American Revolution. You have the mainstream view of it in which uh, the, the true objectives of the American Revolution were not, are not presented accurately. And they're given a British slant and a banker slant, a Jewish slant. And then there's the true patriots who uh, want to uh, want you to understand what the revolution was all about. It was de- decoupling from the Jewish banking establishment of Britain. That was the true purpose of the American Revolution. And as a result of that breaking away from Britain, the Articles of Confederation were composed early on during the American Revolution. And so that's what I'm going to be quoting from today. But but even before I go into that, you'll never hear anybody quote the fact that Benjamin Franklin stated that the true cause of the American Revolution was the fact that the British bankers, the Jew bankers in Britain, would not allow the colonists to have their own money. We had to use Jew money. That is, pounds and whatever. When, in fact, the uh, circulating medium in America was, I think, pieces of eight and other uh, types of gold and silver coins uh, and, and also printed money, fiat money printed by the colonies themselves, which uh, was not really worth very much. So if you could afford to have pieces of eight, silver and other types of gold, then uh, you were doing very well. You were doing very well. But the colonies, in order to make their own uh, ends meet, they often issued paper money, unbacked fiat money, which uh, is, which often wasn't a very good a good deal. Even in Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin issued fiat money, and but he was able to make it work because the fiat money was issued more along the lines of being, um, how should I put this? Uh, investment paper in local projects. So if you want to invest in a bridge, you were issued a piece of paper. You may, uh, whatever you paid for, you may put your property up as collateral. Maybe you invested, uh, you know, gold and silver coins. But it was a corporation. It was corporation money. So they invested, let's say, in a bridge across the Delaware River. And once the bridge was completed, you would get paid back, usually with interest, interest being the profits made from the traffic across the bridge, okay? And then that paper was discontinued once, once, the, uh, you know, once its uh, stipulations were confirmed. But we ha- what we have today with corporations is they go on forever. <laughs> they last forever. They never settle their debts. They never uh, pay out what they're originally set out to do. And then even worse, we have corporations owning other corporations. Uh, so there's a never-ending list of corporations, and we have a corporate umbrella over not just America, but over the entire world. And it's headed by bankers who own most of these corporations, and there's no end to this. So, uh, And often the, the Jewish control of the world economy is often pictured as an octopus, <laughs> a multi or eight-pronged octopus uh, over the planet, okay? And that is very accurate. That is totally accurate. All right, so 
let's get into this document here. The biography of John Dickinson is one of the first patriots they talk about here. Uh, John Dickinson, born November 8, 1732, Talbot County, Maryland, died February 14, 1808. So he was able to see America become an actual nation. And by the way, I should also mention that the original three, the first three immigration laws passed by Congress in the early days, and I think the last one was 1802, all stipulated that you had to be white. You had to be a white person, and you had to be a resident of a particular state or colony in those days. And most of these colonies stipulated that you had to be a Christian in order to hold office. And this idea has been criticized by many. Uh, Ted Weiland criticized the U.S. Constitution because it didn't stipulate that in the Constitution that you had to be a Christian to be an American. Well, it wasn't necessary because the colonies themselves had already stipulated that, and the federal constitution was only a, um, at, at that time at least, a rubber stamp for what the colonies wanted. There was no federalism in the sense that the government, the national government, overruled the states. No, the states were, the states were supreme. And the federal government was simply called upon to uh, call, decide upon disputes between and among the states. It did not have direct authority over any state like it does today. It has morphed into that. But the federal government in those days had very, very limited powers. Actually, according to the Constitution, those powers are still very limited. And it it includes establishing a national military, but not a standing army. Constitution does not advocate a standing army. And the fact of the matter is that it isn't the Constitution that uh, uh, dragged Christianity down. It was the churches, (laughs) the so-called Christian churches that dragged Christianity down. The uh, First Amendment simply states that no authority... The government, the federal government, has no authority to tell Americans what religion, or in those days, what version of Christianity they should practice. Religion in those days was Christianity. They never conceived of the day when there would be, quote-unquote, Muslim Americans, Hindu Americans, Jewish Americans, etc., etc. In fact, Jews were excluded from citizenship because they were not Christians. Same goes for Indians. Indians were excluded. They had to be white. And in the state you were in, you had to practice some form of Christianity. And even most states uh, forbade Catholics. Catholicism was not recognized in most of the colonies. Maryland being a major exception. Okay. There are a lot of Catholics there. So, and the Catholic Church did not really gain a foothold in America until the Civil War, when a lot of Irish Catholics immigrated from Ireland because they were being exterminated by the, the Rothschilds and other British Jew, Jewish British bankers, and they had, had to for the potato famine was an orchestrated event, and a lot of Irish people had to migrate to America just to survive. Okay, so uh, and they they came over here between the War of eighteen twelve and the Civil War. So all of this ethnic history. Uh, is primarily about white people. Uh, the original American had to be a white person. That was changed by the gradually changed by the Fourteenth Amendment and uh, various uh, changes in uh, legislation. Well, once the Jews got into power in the 1960s with their Jewish pressure groups, such as the American Jewish Congress, American Jewish. Uh, uh, what was it? Another one. Committee and uh, other things like the ADL, B'nai B'rith. As they gained more power in America, Jews in the, in our legislature, who never should have been elected in the first place because it's forbidden our Constitution to have a Jew. Uh, in uh, the original colonies had these constitutions. The subsequent uh, states did not forbid uh, non-whites as the original 13 colonies, they simply 
advocate on freedom of religion and that sort of thing. So our uh, the original Constitution has been watered down over the centuries, the last two centuries, to not resemble the original Constitution at all. But the, uh, all of the original colonies had a provision that you had to be a Christian to hold office. Well, what happened to that? Who changed it? How and when, by whom did it change? Okay, this is, these are the kind of things you have to know. All right, so John Dickinson, born November 8th, 1732, Talbot County, Maryland. Now he's, that Maryland was a Catholic colony, okay? Died February 14th, 1808, Wilmington, Delaware. American statesman often referred to as the penman of the revolution. So, so John Dickinson, very few of us, I was not aware of him before I read this article. So there's a lot of great statesmen in American history, all of them white, all of them Christian. In fact, the uh, very first revolutionaries were uh, the Black Robe Regiment. The Black Robe Regiment is the pastors of the American Revolution, the vast majority of whom were Protestants. But they're the ones who started the American Revolution. It wasn't so much the statesmen, it was the pastors who preached sermons in favor of liberty, the law of liberty as contained in the Bible, against tyranny as imposed upon us by the Jews of the Bank of England and, of course, George III. Born in Maryland, Dickinson moved with his family to Dover, Delaware in 1740. He studied law in London, no less, at the Middle Temple, was it the Temple of Freemasonry? What temple is that? And practiced law in Philadelphia, 1757 to 1760, before entering public life. He represented Pennsylvania in the Stamp Act Congress in 1765 and drafted its Declaration of Rights and Grievances. How about that? Never heard of him. John Dickinson. Or, let's see, yeah, John Dickinson. He drafted the Declaration of Rights and Grievances against the Stamp Act Congress. How about that? He won fame in 1767-68 as the author of Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. He can't possibly be a Jew. To the inhabitants of the British colonies, which is all 13 of them, which appeared in many colonial newspapers. The letters helped turn opinion against the Townshend Act, 1767, under which new duties were collected to pay the salaries of royal officials in the colonies. Okay, so in other words, the Townshend Act were enacted by British Parliament to tax the colonists to pay their bureaucrats. And most of these bureaucrats were anti-colonists at the same time. So uh, it's just like we have today. We have a, a Jewish Congress elected by Jewish money, by Jewish agents and traders, such as Trump and Biden, and uh, the, Bush, the Bush crowd and the Clinton crowd, etc., etc., and on and on it goes. So we, have the, we are being occupied today, history is repeating itself, folks, by a Jewish, we are the colonies of a Jewish government, is what we are. And the quicker our people realize this, the quicker our people will be able to overthrow this Jewish Talmudic hegemony over America. So if America can be accused of being the great whore, it's only because the Jews have taken control of America. But they're the ones who created this for what we call Judeo-Christianity, which is the whore. Judeo-Christianity is the whore. And it's the false prophet. It's part of the false prophet of the book of Revelation, whereas the eighth beast is clearly the international banking system, the Federal Reserve and fractional reserve banking system, which was instituted by the third beast, Babylon, and has been revived, reincarnated, re-energized, and now is global by the house of Rothschild, the eighth beast, okay? So these are things you have to understand to understand what's happening in the world today. And the reason why I'm going here, and I'm probably going to do more of these portraits of American patriots is to show the difference between, number one, the Articles of Confederation, 
versus the U.S. Constitution, there really weren't many differences. Uh, number one, the main difference was that after the revolution, the colonists realized they had to have to have a, a more powerful military and they have to have a federal government in which at least the, um, the colonies, the 13 colonies, could conduct regular business and compare notes and discuss, you know, well, we've got an enemy. For example, Thomas Jefferson went to war against the, um, the Muslims of Tripoli, of the Barbary Coast. Okay? He had to consult with Congress before doing that. So he was not a dictator. And what was going on there? Well, the Muslims were invading Europe, taking Europeans as slaves and selling them into slavery in Africa. All right? From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. That's where Tripoli was. And that's what that song represents, the shores of Tripoli. Jefferson's invasion of the Barbary Coast to put an end to the practice. And they were also invading uh, our ships and taking our sailors prisoner and making slaves out of them. So, oh, you know, uh, why don't why don't the black Africans and the Muslims pay us uh, retribution for the slavery of all the white people they took from Europe, which numbers in the millions, folks, numbers in the millions, probably far more than black slaves in the South, were abducted, and with Jewish cooperation. The Jews were the financiers of these slave operations, and the Muslims were the ones who carried them out. All right, And most people don't know that the Jews were the ones who brought the black slaves to America, and it was from, was it Dover, Delaware? I'm not sure if that was one of the ports where uh, slavery was conducted to bring blacks to America. Certainly Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, there was another port in in Delaware that uh, was uh, the port of call for slavery. But uh, these ships were all owned by Jews. They were not owned by white people. Slavery and and, uh, rum running was a Jewish business. And that's what most people don't understand. Yes, Zionist occupation government is what we now have, exactly. And the world has it, too. And it's going to be very difficult to extradite the parasite. (laughs) That's a good slogan. Extradite the parasite. Extradite the parasite from our body, because it's in our body. It's, It's bad enough they're on our shores and living within our territory, but they have intermarried us with us as well, to uh, also to our detriment. So let's continue with the story of John Dickinson. So, uh, all right. So he represented Pennsylvania in the Stamp Act Congress and drafted its Declaration of Rights and Grievances. He won fame as the author of the letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania to the inhabitants of the British colonies. Let me click on this. That looks really good. Okay, it looks like it's pretty short. Yeah, I'll read it. It's pretty short. Oh, okay, there's a lengthier article. I'll just read the, read the introduction here. 1767-68, as the author of Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania to the Inhabitants of the British Colonies, which appeared in many colonial newspapers, the letters helped turn opinion against the Townshend Act under which new duties were collected to pay the salaries of royal officials in the colonies. Well, with the Jews coming to our shores and sponsoring the income tax amendment and, of course, the Federal Reserve Act and the Tax-Exempt Corporations Act, we can see that America has a full-fledged grievance against our Jewish oppressor, just as we did in those days against the British oppressor and the Bank of England, which was behind that oppressor, okay? So, folks, our people simply don't know the Constitution. They, they don't know our history, just as Christians don't know the history of the Bible. They think they understand the Bible. They think they can know the Bible without understanding the history of the, the 12 tribes and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, you know, the, Seth down to Noah, etc. They think they can know the Bible without knowing these things. Well, that's absurd. Totally absurd. Anyway, let's continue here. 
He also denounced the establishing of the American Board of Customs Commissioners at Boston to enforce the acts, okay? Well, yeah, more bureaucrats. You know, so number one, they have all these bureaucrats that are paid handsome salaries, just like the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party is just as bad, creating a gigantic bureaucracy. But that was started by Roosevelt when he created all these alphabet soup organizations in the midst of the Great Depression, no less, to taxing the American people and siphoning off funds from whatever money the government had. And then he took money, the gold, away from the American people and shifted, shipped it off to Great Britain to, to, so that Great Pitten... Pittance that Great Pittance could pay its debts with all that gold because Great Britain lost a lot of money funding World War One. Okay, a lot of money, and so Roosevelt took gold from the American people to pay off his blood brother Jews in Britain because Delano, the Delano family was Jewish, so Roosevelt was part Jewish. But he did the Brits a huge favor by sequestering, confiscating our gold and giving it to the Brits. That, that's what kind of President Roosevelt was. Okay, So we have had nothing but traitors in office for the last hundred years. For the last hundred years. And even before then we had traitors. But uh, for the most part, uh, the first hundred years of our existence, uh, there weren't that many traitors. However, there were there were people who were pro-slavery and anti-slavery. That's another story. We'll deal with that another time. But nevertheless, both sides of the Civil War had British traitors in the government. Judah P. Benjamin being the one in the South, and uh, Belmont, August Belmont. He was a trader in the North. Both of them representatives of the banks, the Rothschild banks in Europe. Okay, and I'm going to start doing shows about the Civil War to clarify those issues as well. But let's continue here. But we, the reason I'm doing this is because we're we're going to have to get ready for another revolution. That revolution is coming. They've been trying to take our guns away, don't you know? On the pretext of saving the children from those awful white racists and gun owners, right, to, who want to kill everybody. No, we don't want to kill everybody. We just want to kill those who want to kill us. Defend ourselves against those who want to kill us, such as the Jew gun grabbers and the Democrat gun grabbers. And there's even gun grabbers in the Republican Party as well. Those are traitors also, okay? So, the Jew gun grabbers are the number one, the parasite. Once the parasite gets his claws into you and starts sucking your blood, he is not going to want to leave that comfy, cozy, warm body of the white patriot alone. Needs to suck that blood, folks. And, of course, the Jews are bloodsuckers. So, but he uh, he voted against, interestingly. Wait, let me start this uh, paragraph over. Dickinson was a delegate from Pennsylvania in the Continental Congress, 1774 to 1776, and was the principal author of the Declaration setting forth the causes and necessity of their taking up arms. So not the Declaration, but it was a Declaration setting forth for the necessity of taking up arms. Well, that's probably worth reading, because we need to to keep our arms, right? Keep the Jews from disarming us, keep the liberals from disarming us, Black Lives Matter, who are communists from disarming us, and Schwab, and uh, all the other Jews in our, uh, you know, who have parasitized our government from disarming us, etc., etc. That uh, we're going to have another revolution, folks. Whether it's called a civil war or a revolution, doesn't matter. We're going to start fighting back again. All right. But he voted against the Declaration of Independence. Oh, he helped prepare the first draft of the Articles of Confederation, but voted against the Declaration of Independence. Now, he didn't vote against the Constitution. He voted against the Declaration of Independence. So I'm wondering what his view of the Constitution was. It would be nice to have a bird's-eye view of someone who 
helped draft the Articles in Confederation but voted against the Declaration of Independence. Did he get cold feet? Or did the revolution get too hot for him? Anyway, because he still hoped for conciliation with the British, okay? Although he was accused of being a loyalist, he later served in the Pennsylvania militia, rising to the rank of Brigadier General. No, I am not a loyalist, okay? What's a loyalist? Well, those are the colonists who sided with Britain during the Revolutionary War, and there, I think it was the number was 30,000 after the uh, Revolutionary War actually had to move to Canada because they were being so harassed. So Canada is essentially a loyalist country. From that moment on, Canada, well, of course, they were all, they've always been in the hands of the British government. They never rebelled against Britain. So Canada has always been a loyalist country. Okay, nevertheless, uh, although we did have trouble with the Canadians during the Civil War, another fact that's been buried in the history books, the kibosh, the Orwellian uh, <laughs> pigeonhole, right? The memory hole of history. And these memory holes need to be opened up because there's a lot of damning information, even more damning against the Jews than you could possibly imagine. And of course, traitors in our government, both North and South. But let's continue. So, in 1781, he served as president of the state of Delaware, and then from 1782 to 1785 as the president of Pennsylvania before returning to Delaware. So he had a, he had a love-hate relationship with Delaware. As a delegate from Delaware to the Federal Constitutional Convention, Dickinson signed the U.S. Constitution and worked for its adoption. So he argued against the uh, Declaration of Independence, but was in favor of the Constitutional Convention. So another reason why I'm going to be doing these articles is because there are a lot of anti-Constitution people there. I brought up Ted Wyland earlier, who hate our Constitution because they think it's too, too federal. Well, the original federal government had virtually no power, had virtually no power to collect taxes. And there was, there was very precious little legislation coming from the federal government because the, the original view of the federal government was it was simply there. For, there were for eight reasons, eight reasons, uh, eight powers given to the Constitution delegated to the federal government, not delegated uh, and, uh, and often did not give the even power over the sovereignty of the states. Okay. But for example, one being defending the borders, okay? So the federal government is supposed to defend our borders. What's wrong with that? Because not every state could uh, defend, you know, so Delaware couldn't defend Pennsylvania. Delaware could only defend Delaware. and But Pennsylvania was a very large state, and New York was a very large state. They could afford to send troops from those two to the border, to the seacoast, if Britain chose to invade again, which it did in 1812, don't you know? So we need to talk about what powers were delegated to the federal government, and it wasn't very many. And uh, they were primarily judiciary in consideration. They created a Supreme Court, which the purpose of was to uh, adjudicate differences between states. So if Delaware sued Pennsylvania, uh, it wouldn't do to have uh, the suit in either Delaware or Pennsylvania. It should have a neutral site with hopefully neutral judges, and that's why we have a Supreme Court. And, of course, we've had uh, uh, lower courts established because there's so, been so much litigation between then and now. And you could also say there was very little litigation in those days. But one of the other primary matters of concern was whether we should have a first bank of the United States. And Thomas Jefferson was opposed to it because he understood that it would be a Jewish bank. And uh, the other guy, <laughs> sorry, <coughs> excuse me, 
<coughs> who uh, was actually Washington's right-hand man in many cases because he was a good soldier, actually was for establishing the first bank of the United States, and that was Alexander Hamilton. So we had this major rift between Hamilton and Jefferson, but Washington decided in favor of Hamilton for two reasons, in my opinion. One was because Hamilton was one of his best generals and won many victories for the revolution, and so he had a close tie, emotional and and friendship tie with Hamilton, but also because America was bankrupt. And he took Alexander Hamilton's argument that if we establish a first bank in the United States, then we could borrow money from that uh, you know, bank and pay off our debts, which is what the Congress did, by and large. I can't say when, but when... Uh, when we had uh, you know, the, the rift before the uh, Civil War, Andrew Jackson paid off the national debt and our country was debt-free. I think it's the only time our country was debt-free. And he said to the bank, the uh, second bank of the United States at that time, you are a den of vipers and I will rout you out. He understood that the bank... First Bank and Second Bank of the United States were nothing but Jew banks. And he treated them as such. And you can bet that the Rothschilds and other Jew bankers hated his guts. And they tried to assassinate him. But fortunately, the two pistols that were used in the assassination attempt both misfired. Probably because it was a humid day. Right? You had to keep your powder dry in those days. If you loaded it the night before... And if you had a rain overnight, chances are your powder wouldn't fire, okay? So that's how that works. So now today, we don't even need gunpowder anymore. We've got more sophisticated weapons than that. So it's very I find it very interesting that John Dickinson voted against the Declaration of Independence but voted for the U.S. Constitution. So the fact is, the... Federal government, as originally founded, was not the behemoth of, you know, taking our rights away then as it is today. However, I could see there's certain arguments that there are things that the founders didn't realize could be uh, misinterpreted and warped by Jewish minds. (laughs) I think only Benjamin Franklin and George Washington foresaw that possibility. But you have to understand, they just came out of a revolution. And so the, the purpose, the main purpose of the U.S. Constitution was to correct problems in the Articles of Confederation. And very little was changed, actually. Very little was changed. But nevertheless, freedom of religion uh, was contained in all the state uh, constitutions. They all prescribed Christianity as a mandate for, you had to have a Christian belief to be considered a representative of that state. So there's really very little that changed, but they had these, uh, you know, having uh, not a standing army, but the militias of each state would be available to fight a foreign foe should we be invaded again. And that has come in handy on a, a few occasions, Okay. Uh, but nevertheless, the Congress adopted a draft for World War One and Two, uh, which were unconstitutional. But nevertheless, they did it anyway. Okay, so uh, don't blame the Constitution for that. You you can't blame the corruption of a document on those who are corrupting the document. Okay, the saying this is what I said to Ted Wyland. It wasn't the Constitution that was the problem. It was the Christian pastors who subverted. Christianity here in America by making it a universalist religion as opposed to the white people's religion it was in the days of the colonies. All right, let's continue. So, let me repeat this. As a delegate from Delaware to the Federal Constitutional Convention in 1787, 
Dickinson signed the U.S. Constitution and worked for its adoption. He later defended the document in a series of letters entitled, signed Fabius. Very interesting. Fabius. I wonder if he's aware of the Fabian Society, (laughs) which was uh, actually uh, after an Illuminatus. The Fabian Society was created after an Illuminatus, Spartacus being the name of the original uh, uh, Illuminatus. Adam Weishaupt, who was uh, you know, empowered by none other than uh, Meyer Amschel Rothschild to infiltrate Freemasonry and turn it into an Illuminati organization. Okay, and they kept on infiltrating our politicians ever since. It's been an Illuminati assault against them. They had already infiltrated U- European governments, even even by then, because the French Revolution was an Illuminati enterprise from beginning to end, the reign of terror. And that's why they had a reign of terror, because it was the Jew banksters and, and Jewish infiltrators who created the French Revolution and the reign of terror. So he signed his letters as Fabius. That's interesting. Dickinson College at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, chartered in 1783, was named in his honor. So those would be interesting to read. Again, uh, Defense of the Constitution by Fabius. That would be very interesting reading. All right. Continental Congress. The Continental Congress, in the period of the American Revolution, the body of delegates who spoke and acted collectively for the people of the colony states that later became the United States of America. The term most specifically refers to the bodies that met in 1774 and 1775-81 to and respectively designated as the First Continental Congress and the Second Continental Congress. Okay, well, they had to go home. Many of them were actually fighting in the Revolution as well. In the spring of 1774, the British Parliament's passage of the Intolerable Coercive Acts, the Intolerable Acts, including the closing of the Port of Boston, provoked keen resentment in the colonies. The First Continental Congress convened in response to the acts by the Colonial Committees of Correspondence. Oh, we need to reinvigorate the Committees of Correspondence, and we need to take control of correspondence away from the Jews. It's almost They've made it almost impossible to correspond with one another without their censorship. That's why the ADL... The Anti-Dissent League was formed to combat freedom of speech. The one group opposing freedom of speech in America today is the Anti-Dissent League of B'nai B'rith, the Jewish secret society that created it, folks. B'nai B'rith is that society. Okay. Yeah, and so, yeah, where does New Orleans come in? (laughs) New Orleans came in. uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Thank you, Jeffrey. Newport, Rhode Island was the second, uh, it was Charleston, South Carolina, and Newport, Rhode Island, that were the two ports where the Jews owned all those slave ships. And they were uh, brewing whiskey and rum and all that kind of other stuff with which to trade for slaves. And then they sailed across the Atlantic, uh, leaving the coast of Africa, the western coast of Africa, where they would pick up the uh, sugar and then they took it up to the distilleries in Newport and Charleston and turned it into whiskey. Okay? So it was rum and whiskey from the Americas to Africa, from Africa, the slaves, and of course some of those slaves continued on to America. But they would also pick up sugar, or somewhere they would pick up some sugar as well, which they needed to for their alcohol production, right? So this is the primary engagement of the Jews uh, between the American Revolution, even before the American Revolution, and uh, the Civil War, okay? So the Jews were on both sides of the Civil War, playing us for patsies and financing both sides of the Civil War, playing us as patsies. Okay, so thanks, thanks, thanks Jeffrey, for that information. Anyway, 
the Continental Congress Committees of Correspondence. Uh, we need to demand our right to correspond with each other without the interference of the perfidious Jew. The Committees of Correspondence met in Philadelphia on September 5th, 1774. Fifty-six deputies represented all the colonies except Georgia. Peyton Randolph of Virginia was unanimously elected president, thus establishing usage of that term as well as Congress. Charles Thompson of Pennsylvania was elected secretary and served in that office during the 15-year life of the Congress. Okay, Charles Thompson of Pennsylvania. Why do I not know that name? Uh, I know the name of Pinckney. There were two Pinckneys uh, serving in the Continental Congress at that time, but let me click on his name. Charles Thompson. Charles Thompson of Pennsylvania was elected secretary and served in that office during the 15-year life of the Congress. Birthplace, Northwest was the, oh, read more, okay. Northwest is not close enough. I want to know the town. Well, let me read more on this. Okay. All right. The term most specifically refers to the bodies that met in 1774 and 1775 to 81. Okay. And uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I think we read this already. And not much, not much to go on here, so I'll just go back to the document I was reading from. Oh, it's got something here on the Great Seal of the United States. Oh, we'll definitely have to save that for next time. The Great Seal of the United States. So was he involved in that? It looks like he was. All right, I'll have to make a note of that. That's very important stuff. Because the Great Seal of the United States incorporates a lot of Hebrew symbolism, folks. Not Jewish, but Hebrew symbolism. Okay. So let me glide back up here and see if I can uh, find Mr. Ah. History and Society Britannica. Now, who was I? It was uh, John Dickinson, but then we had. Who was I talking about, folks? <laughs> John Dickinson. And that's where I'm at right now, but after Dickinson. Huh. I, I usually have a. Uh, Read more sign that will add more verbiage to what I'm reading from, but it seems to have lost that. Although it's got a nice article here. What was Alexander Hamilton's early life like? That would be interesting. Because my understanding, and a lot of people say he was a Jew, but my understanding is that his mother was not a Jewess, but she married a Jew after his father died. So Alexander Hamilton was not a Jew, but he had a Jewish stepfather. That's what I recall of researching his life. Okay. Researching his life. And so maybe we'll dig up more dirt on Hamilton. But uh, since his stepfather was Jewish, Alexander Hamilton would have been in favor of establishing a first bank of England. Now, if Benjamin Franklin had lived past into these days, he might have recommended fiat money, just as Abraham Lincoln did and just as other presidents did, to pay off the debt. Okay? Uh, outsiders would not have liked that, but the government could have offered them discounts on trade. There's all kinds of creative ways to do it because that's what Benjamin Franklin did in Pennsylvania. He created fiat money, but that fiat money was retired after it had served its purpose because fiat money is frowned upon by all economists except Jewish economists. 
because fiat money can be printed without having any backing, and that's what the Federal Reserve Board is doing to our economy. They are inflating, hyperinflating our money to death because they're the ones who have first use. They spend it into circulation and get full value of what the current rate of inflation is. But once, uh, if they, let's say, have a 20% issue of Federal Reserve notes, then then there'll be a 20% increase in prices across the board. But that won't take effect until all the money they just issued with the new issue takes effect. And that's the delay, the delay factor of inflation. It always takes a little while for the recent issue of money to uh, inflate prices. Whereas if you are the first one to issue the money, you get virtually full value of the money issued before inflation takes effect. There's a delay factor taking off here. All right, so that's the way that works. And if you don't know these things about economy, economics, you won't know that the Jews have our country in a stranglehold. In fact, you could say they have a noose around our necks. A noose around our necks. But maybe we need to establish, well, we are sort of, uh, uh, the uh, the committees of correspondence. That's where I was, and I, I don't, I can't find that link in this current article. It just kind of disappeared. Committees of correspondence. So what we need to do is establish, and we're actually in the beginning of establishing such, because people no longer accept Jew media. For news, okay? And maybe there's a streamlined way of putting out newsletters by email and uh, keeping their logarithms from accessing our stuff. We have to use code language, just as the Jews use code language. (laughs) Excuse me. And spy on us with their code language. Because... They don't have the ability to spy on every single person, every single email, every single letter, etc. They don't have that. I don't care how big their computers are. You know, they have to have people to monitor those things. All they do, uh, their, their, their code is nothing but they're looking for catch words and catch phrases like Hitler. Right? If you have an email that has the name of Hitler in it, oh, that's going to raise a red flag right away. Okay. Uh, patriotism, red flag, racist, red flag, etc., etc., bombing, red flag. So those words are going to trigger their, uh, you know, their, their computer, their computers real quick, okay? And they will flag that type of language. So, and in fact, uh, as I've related a few times in the past, when I first got on the internet, I had an AOL account. And every time I sent out an article to, you know, a group, and they limited it to 100 emails at a time, and I think they still limit it uh, pretty much that way today, uh, unless you get a special email account where you can mail out thousands of emails at a time, that uh, you have to you have to be limited. And so, if I, whenever I had the word Jew in the title, they would flag that email and it wouldn't be delivered. So I'd have to call up AOL and say, hey, what's going on here? Why weren't our emails delivered? They would never give me a reason, but I said, I, if you want to keep me as a customer, you better give me my emailing privileges back because I'm paying for my email. And then they would restore my email account. But I had to go through this at least 20 times before I got wise. And, oh, uh, I know, if I just respell J-E-W, as J-O-O, their, their computers won't recognize the word, okay? So that's why I started spelling J-E-W as J-O-O. Sometimes it's just a simple trick like that. That's all you have to do to fuel, uh, fool rather. They're, they're spies and fuel our last American revolution, okay? 
So these are the types of things. To get under the radar, so to speak, is what we have to do. And I think we are creative enough and smart enough to be able to do that as we continue in our discussion here as committees of correspondence. Of course, Eurofolk Radio can serve that function as well. So uh, I'll have to ask Paul how, how we can do that because I believe our email program can put out thousands of emails at once. But uh, I've, I've gotten so used to using the ones that I have that uh, you know, this old dog would have to learn a couple of new tricks to do that. But maybe that's the way to go, or maybe somebody has an idea of how we can uh, put our heads together and have a committees of correspondence via email because print paper and mailing and stamps, etc., envelopes is pretty expensive. You know, you, you can't reach tens of thousands of people without getting really into a lot of money. And then you would have to, you know, get donations. Maybe we can develop that. But in the meantime, email is the way to go. And as long as we have email, we can reach thousands, okay? Maybe an email circulation club where if I send out one email, 10 people send it to 10 others, to 10 others, to 10 others, to 10 others. And I think that's actually the way the committees of correspondence worked. They would simply uh, you know, uh, authorize certain individuals to send out more uh, correspondence. All right. And of course, Paul Revere was a member of the committees of correspondence. He got intelligence even before the British people, the British army was able to figure out what was going on. So that Lexington and Concord folks, there will be another Lexington and Concord coming up because there will be a last and final revolution against the perfidious Edomites in the world today. Thank you. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> Elka, hello, anyone in there ever searched why these Jews accept, adopt German-sounding and spelled names? Oh, I have the answer for that, Elka, and that is because during World War I, the Jews actually supported Germany against Russia, but when Russia was defeated and uh, Germany turned against communism, that's when German Jews, who actually supported Germany up until that point in the, t- in the war, then adopted German names and migrated to America and left Germany, okay? And, of course, that went on through World War II as well. That was the beginning of that. Uh, uh, you know, and of course, the, the Jews were in Germany for, you know, like 70, 80 years already, and that's when they adopted German names, okay? All right, Elka, thanks for the question. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. Stay Jew savvy. Bye-bye.